Welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur, where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So, jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. Hello, my incredible listeners, and welcome back to another episode of The New Wave Entrepreneur. This is my direct line to you where we get to talk about all the things that are happening in the world that are absolutely changing the way that we live, that we work, that we think, and that we be. And today is a really special episode because we're going deep down the crypto rabbit hole just a little bit further. And we're talking about starting your first crypto portfolio. This is a very, very interesting topic for me because I'm always learning. I'm always uh, essentially readjusting my own expectations of the market and always developing new new insights on what's happening. And, you know, this is, I think, one of the most popular episodes or I anticipate it being one of the most popular episodes to date because everyone wants to know how to do this. How What should they be doing? How should they be correctly thinking about building their new crypto assets? How should they set up, set up a, a portfolio? And so before we get into the, the nitty gritty of the information today, and this is just a solo episode between me and you, uh, I want to go over some, some ground rules, some basics for just getting the conversation started, okay? And the first and most important uh, ground rule here is that this is not financial advice. You know, um, investing in crypto is very volatile, we should say, very volatile, and you could lose all your money, you know. But I, I don't think that's any different than investing in the stock market, for instance. You know, the stock market is also uh, quite risky, as they say, and you could lose all your money. Anything that you're investing in where you're hoping to get a return, there's always a chance that you'll lose. So just keep that in mind. And keep in mind here that I don't consider myself a guru with this stuff. I, I never really have uh, with any of the stuff I do. I always consider myself a teacher and an active participant in the things that I teach. I believe that once you become a guru, you begin to separate yourself from those that are learning and continue to learn. And once you stop learning, you start to calcify and you calcify your knowledge based on where you're at now. And then you don't you don't acquire new knowledge. You don't acquire new understandings. People who are stuck in old patterns can't grow. You know, in the old style, they can't they can't transition to the new style. And this is, of course, the new wave entrepreneur. And the new wave is a continuous flow. So I, I see myself as a very interested participant in this market, not a guru, but certainly a facilitator of information and happy to share the things that I do learn along the way. So just keep this in mind. Anything that we say on this podcast, you know, regarding this is not financial advice, but you're smart and you understand that. So that's just what my lawyers tell me to say. <laughs> okay. And with that idea of risk and volatility, let's actually discuss the difference between volatility and risk. My personal opinion is that crypto and really everything that's developing in this Web3 space, this blockchain technology, these new financial markets are volatile. Okay. Volatile, meaning that in the day to day, they are going up and down and they can lose, you know, 20, 30, 40% in a month. And it's very scary. Uh, and it's very volatile if you look at the graph on a day-to-day -day basis. The stock market, while it is certainly unpredictable at times, isn't quite as volatile. You know, you don't see as big of the crash as you do in uh, crypto with Bitcoin going last year from, you know, uh, from like, I think 7K at one point to 60K, then down to 30K. That's what I would call the definition of volatility. 
But I think there's a big difference between volatile and risky. Volatile is the day-to-day -day or the, you know, the relatively short-term fluctuation of these assets. However, if you look at the graph and the curve of let's just let's just consider the big assets here. Let's just talk Bitcoin and Ethereum, which we'll dig into more later. These are the, the top two assets. They are continuously going up into the right over the time that they have been uh, you, you know existing in the world, which I think Bitcoin was uh, founded in 2008, 2009. And so these things are these things are steadily growing year after year and at an exponential rate really and crypto specifically are the highest performing asset class in the history of humanity. So they're very volatile but in the long run I don't believe them to be as risky as let's say something like the US dollar, you know, or many fiat currencies. The US dollar doesn't feel very risky because on a day-to-day -day basis it's pretty consistent. You know, a loaf of bread today is the same as it was yesterday and probably will be around the same price tomorrow. But if you look at the market in terms of how much things have changed over the years, a loaf of bread in 1971, or let's just say 1970, before we got off the gold standard was what, 25 cents, 50 cents, and now it's $5. And to me, that shows through inflation that these, these uh, currencies, we'll talk about fiat currencies, you know, in, in a bit, but these currencies are actually quite risky. And my opinion is that I would rather put my money into things that I, though they're volatile on a day-to-day -day basis, are I see as less risky in the long run. Now, there are a lot of risky cryptos out there, but the concept of cryptocurrencies and the concept of these blockchain technology-based currencies, to me, is not risky at all because it's here to stay. Although it's new, it's here to stay. And so if we're smart and we're we're uh, investing intelligently, we're going to make a lot of smart decisions that end up giving us, you know, really good outcomes in the long run. In the short term, everything is volatile in the crypto space. In the long term, I believe it not to be as risky as even something like the American dollar. And I see that over the coming years, especially over the coming decades, the American dollar will continue to lose potency as cryptocurrency continues to take off. So though, that's my opinion on volatile versus risky. And I want to make a distinction between those terms. Now, just a brief, kind of a brief history of crypto here. You know, as we talk about cryptocurrency, what are we actually talking about? We are talking about, um, we're talking about basically financial instruments that started off as, uh, you know, just a very small group of people basically creating these, creating these technologies, specifically Bitcoin and then later Ethereum, that were, you know, they were seen as I think by the majority of people, bubbles. They were seen as flukes. They were seen as something that wouldn't be taken seriously. When Bitcoin was introduced in 2009 by its anonymous creator, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, we don't know whether Satoshi Nakamoto was a single person or a collective group of people. I tend to think it was like actually a collective group of people. He wrote a white paper that was released and distributed to a few thousand people outlining the need for a cryptocurrency. And I'm actually going to, I'm actually going to bring up that that uh, white paper here. Let's see if I have it. Now here, I'm going to read the abstract for you about this, about, about Bitcoin. So this is from his uh, 2008 white paper. So abstract. So well, basically it says, at the top it says, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Abstract. A purely peer-to-peer -peer version of electronic cash would allow online payments to be sent directly from one party to another without going through a financial institution. Digital signatures provide part of the solution, but the main benefits are lost if a trusted third party is still required to prevent double spending. We propose a solution to the double spending problem using a peer-to-peer -peer network. The network of timestamps transa timestamps uh, transactions by host by hashing them into an ongoing chain of hash-based proof of work, forming a record that cannot be changed without redoing the proof of work. The longest chain 
not only serves as proof of the sequence of, ev of events witnessed, but proof that it came from the largest pool of CPU power. As long as the majority of CPU power is controlled by nodes that are not cooperating to attack the network, they'll generate the longest chain and outpace attackers. The network itself requires minimal structure. Messages are broadcast on a best effort basis, and nodes can leave and rejoin the network at will, accepting the longest proof of work chain as proof of what happened while they were gone. So this little abstract, which if you go to satoshinakamoto.me slash bitcoin.pdf, I'll put this into my notes as well, you know, the PDF uh, with this white paper. If you check out this white paper, basically that, that abstract outlines the concept for not only Bitcoin, but also the blockchain. And the blockchain is essentially the technology that Bitcoin is built on top of. A lot of times people will use words like cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and blockchain interchangeably, but they are in fact different. And so this outlines the vision for what Bitcoin would become and for what ultimately, you know, cryptocurrency would become. And what I think is so interesting about this abstract is that he talks about things like a trusted third party is still required to prevent double spending. And oftentimes in our financial transactions, in our everyday lives, as consumers of products, as people who are, um, you know, who are who are interacting in this digital world, we depend on third parties to essentially help us to spend, save, uh, and transact our money. And those third parties, as we've seen, are not always necessarily trustworthy. You know, from the banking system to the to the to the credit system to you know the international transfer of money to data leaks to all these different things where a third party is required to either move our data or our money from one place to another. We've seen consistently over time that these these trusted quote trusted. Uh, third parties aren't necessarily the ones with our best interests in mind. And Bitcoin was the first cryptocurrency and it was the really the, the first digital, all digital currency to address the issue of having a, a ledger. This ledger, which is basically the blockchain, is an, you know, a digital receipt that allows us to see exactly which transactions are happening on the, on this ledger. You know, imagine if every transaction of your financial life was kept on one receipt that was immutable and unchangeable. Well, that would mean that you'd have a good verification of what was going in and what was going out. And it could be right on, right on, right on the paper. And people could see with truth and veracity what was happening. That is what is required in the digital world in order for us to have true transparency in all the transactions that are going on. And blockchain stretches far beyond just financial implications into a lot of other areas of focus when it comes to our digital lives. But Bitcoin was really the first cryptocurrency and the first, what I believe was the first technology to address the need for a blockchain uh, and address the need for this digital ledger system. And then other cryptocurrencies came along the way. And so really cryptocurrency and blockchain in general are foundational pieces of understanding uh, Web 3.0 and why we need Web 3.0. And if you're curious to learn more about that, uh, I recorded an episode a few weeks ago. Uh, it was episode two of this show. It was called Web 3.0 Essentials, I believe. And you can check to hear more about what my thoughts are on Web 3.0 and what some of the fundamental concepts are with this new uh, you know, paradigm that's shifting. So that's kind of you know the, why we have a need for this system. I can go on and on about this. I mean, I think the main thing is we can't really trust the banks. We can't really trust people who are holding our money. You know, I'll tell a brief story, and I put this on my Instagram a few weeks ago. Earlier this year, in 2021, uh, I wanted to take a loan against my my whole life policy, uh, my whole life life insurance policy. Now, if people don't know what that is, basically, if you create a uh, whole life insurance policy, 
it acquires or it, it accrues cash value. And that cash value can be spent at any time. It can be used any time because it's essentially your own money. So you can loan yourself money from your own policy to invest in things, to pay for things. It's your money. And that's separate from the actual uh, value of the policy itself. And so my insurance company, Mass Mutual, uh, I called them up and I said, hey, I'd like to take out $15,000 from my uh, life insurance policy and I'm going to do, I was going to run some investments with it. So Basically, what happened was very interesting. Um, first of all, there was a really weird delay in how long it took for me to just call them versus how long it took for them to release the money. I had to call them, you know, between three and five times. I believe it was closer to five times. I have to look back up my phone records. But it was like three to five times to even ensure that the money had been released, that it was coming, that it, that it was possible, that it was happening. You know, so there's always this idea of having to deal with other people to access what's already yours, which on the blockchain, money would be instantaneous and there would be nobody stopping you from immediately accessing that money. And not only did it take me three weeks to get that money, but when it showed up on my account, uh, there was only $7,000 there, about half of what they owed me. And this is so interesting because I had screenshots and printouts of their own backend system, their financial backend system that said, hey, you got $15,000 in cash value in your policy. And so it took me uh, a few weeks just to get a hold of people in this massive organization. This is a 200-year-old company. And we were going back and forth because I said, hey, guys, you know, it's very clear here that there's $15,000 of cash value in this policy. You know, where's the rest of my money? And they said, oh, well, you know, we'll investigate it. We're, we're not sure what happened. We'll investigate it. And it took them another month. So this, is, uh, this happened around June. And it wasn't until October uh, so now we're talking four months when they got back to me and they said, hey, you know what? Actually, we had a computer error and uh, we were actually right. There was only $7,000 in that policy. So tough lucks, kick rocks, eat shit. And they even put in their um, their letter that they sent me, don't bother calling us back because we're done talking about this, essentially. And I thought that was just crazy because I have printouts of their own backend in the Mass Mutual backend. Uh, which basically says how much money is in the policy. That's like going into your Chase account or your Bank of America account, looking at how much money you have in the account and then trying to make a withdrawal and Chase saying, no, you actually only have half of that amount of money in there. And you have the receipts. Not only did I have the total balance of there, uh, you know, how much money I had in there, but I even had the month by month accumulation of how much money was being added to the policy via cash value. So I had the entire buildup and the actual account value in my possession with Mass Mutual's signature and seal on it. And they were saying, actually, there was a computer glitch. Uh, you're wrong. And this is a perfect example of when the blockchain would solve this problem. Because on the blockchain, there is no computer error. You know, it's based on a peer-to-peer network where everybody who is helping to run this network, um, it's, a, it's a decentralized network. Everyone who is helping to run this network is verifying through their own proof of work that these numbers are correct on the receipt. And there's a complex series of algorithms that computers in the network have to solve. And each time they solve it, they unlock a block and that block solves the problem. And that problem verifies the amount of you know money or the transaction on, on the chain. And so it's basically a peer-to-peer verification process with no one central body controlling it. And that's how it remains accurate and true. And once that number is on the ledger, once that, you know, that record's on the ledger, it can't be changed unless the, all the work is done all over again, which that's, doesn't, that's not how the algorithm works. So this is an example where if the insurance company was run on the blockchain, they wouldn't have been able to say, oh, well, there was a mistake in our computers and actually you only have half of your money. That was, from my perspective, fraud. That was basically white collar fraud. 
uh, that was a crime to me. And even if they'd made a mistake, you know, a customer service perspective should have said, hey, you guys need to pay him because if you made a mistake, you still fucked up royally. That's a separate issue besides the fact that really I think that they were actually just playing me and I wonder how many people they've actually done that to in the past and will do in the future. And you're absolutely right. I did cancel my policy with them after that. I was paying them about $18,000 a year for a $3 million policy uh, and they couldn't even spare the $7,000 they owed me and which was actually in their own records in order to satisfy their discrepancy. Uh, and then they told me not to email them again. But that's beside the point because blockchain itself would have solved this problem. And I've had other issues too, where for instance, there was one time where I was going up to one of my, uh, one of my bank accounts uh, in California, I think it was US Bank. And I wanted to quickly move my money from uh, from one bank to the next. And I didn't want to wait for a ACH transfer. I wanted to move it from US Bank to Chase Bank. And I want to move $10,000. So I went to go take out $10,000 in cash. And there are two things here. Oftentimes, one, you can't even really withdraw that much cash in one day. They just don't allow it. They don't let you. Uh, I think especially over $10,000, it gets very problematic. You got to call ahead, which, you know, I understand that, you know, cash is essentially limited, but I think it's very interesting that part of what, ha part of, part of what's happening here is there's actually less cash available, physical cash, than there is, quote, money in the bank. And they don't actually have this money. You know, they have to, uh, they have to call other banks to like collect large, when you want to make large withdrawals, they have to collect a certain amount of money for you to actually be able to withdraw it because banks are, are, are making loans and issuing more credit than they actually have available to give out. Uh, and that's an issue of the Federal Reserve System. If you want to hear more about that, check out episode three uh, with my friend Hillary Lee, where she talks all about the Federal Reserve and, you know, and the state of the financial economy and Bitcoin and, and crypto and all that stuff. So that's an interesting point there. So they didn't even have the cash. Well, actually, they did have the cash. But what was more interesting was they said, yeah, we can give you the cash. Normally, we don't have this much cash. We can give it to you. But in order for you to get it, you have to fill out a form that's telling us like where you're going, like how you're going to use it. And you have to do an additional background check. And I said, why do I have to do this? And they said, well, after 9-11, you know, uh, we've had to increase our policies, increase our security on who's able to take out money and what, you know, and whatnot, if it's going to be a large withdrawal, which I just think is absolutely asinine because what does 9-11 have to do with me withdrawing money from my bank? It has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with terrorism. It has nothing to do with, you know, it has nothing to do with me with, with the event of 20 years ago. You know, it's completely irrelevant. 9-11 is in fact an excuse for them to continually, for, for large corporations, for things that are quasi-government, which are banks, and, uh, and for the government themselves to increase the amount of control and restriction on our, on our rights, on our civil liberties, and just on our mind. The mind, you know, the, the mind is the biggest thing to control. So I had to fill out this whole extra form of where I was going to use the money and why I needed it. And I thought, you know, this is completely wrong. And first of all, this is a, is private. I shouldn't have to disclose why. If I want to go and blow this money in, you know, in a strip club, or if I want to blow it at the casino, or if I want to pass out single individual ones to a, a new person, you know, on the street every single hour, I should be able to do that. There's no... I shouldn't have to explain any of this. Uh, you're not my parents. And what if they? What if I said, "Oh, I'm going to go buy an arsenal of guns." I should be able to do that too, you know. So it, it's really not their concern. But I thought that was interesting. And this is another issue where the blockchain would completely solve this problem because, again, they're acting as a third party for me withdrawing my money. They're acting as a third party for me to qualify if I am able to use my money in the way I want to. 
On the blockchain, there is no third party. It's decentralized, meaning that when you want to withdraw your money, move it, transfer it, not only can no one tell you no, but they, but the transfer is instantaneous. If you think about, you know, if you've ever gotten an ACH transfer, whether it's you're transferring to another account, like you're wiring someone money or you're receiving your paycheck, for instance, you know, your paycheck will take three to five business days to hit. Why is it taking so long to hit? These are digital numbers. It's ones and zeros. Why is it taking so long? Well, uh, one of the reasons is because banks are actually holding on to that money for a few days at a time, sometimes up to a week, uh, because they get small amounts of interest the longer they hold that money. And they're holding billions and probably trillions at any given time for a certain amount of days, which is overall adding up interest and it's accruing value for them. That's also another control mechanism. Uh, and of course, there are just some old antiquated systems that are just slow, like people having to manually check things. And it's just, you know, it's kind of BS, you know, so between things like the mass mutual event, between things like trying to withdraw cash, ACH, these are all real examples in my life. And I'm sure you've had some of these examples too, where there you can see a real value to, to blockchain technology and to cryptocurrency in general. Not to mention the fact that cryptocurrency is anonymous. It doesn't mean that you can't track wallets and, and track a wallet to a person, but generally speaking, it's not, it's not, it's not rooted in your personal identity. You know, it's a string of numbers. It's not attached to your social security number. It's not attached to your, your national identity. So these are all real life reasons why just in the financial industry and in the banking industry and in the personal banking world, uh, cryptocurrency would be very useful. And Bitcoin is a store of value. So, you know, that's kind of what's happening with Bitcoin and why this is, this is all and why crypto has become so relevant and necessary in these times. I'll also say another thing too, you know, they say that the stock market or, or they say that your bank account is insured by the FDIC uh, for up to like, I think $250,000. But my question is, who's going to insure the FDIC? Because guess what? <laughs> the dollar doesn't look too, too, too secure right now. You know, the, the country, America is $28 trillion in debt. We only make $22 trillion a year based on our GDP. So we're underwater. The only way that we're able to pay back the interest on the loans we've taken is by creating, by producing more money, which we have an endless supply of money because we just print it whenever we want to. And so that lack of scarcity creates creates massive inflation because we don't have a cap on how much money we can make or uh, how much money we can create. Bitcoin, on the other hand, has a maximum supply of 21 million uh, BTC, which is the symbol for Bitcoin. Right now, we're at 19 million in terms of in circulation. And once it hits 21 million, no more will be created because the way that the algorithm is set up, that's just that's just it. And so that creates a real a real type of scarcity. Now, if you're wondering why there are 19 million in circulation and only in 21 million total, it's because every time a Every time Bitcoin is mined, a small amount gets put into the system for circulation. And basically, from what my understanding is, it's that there are Bitcoin miners. And it used to be that you could mine Bitcoin just with one computer. And now as things got older or more progressed, you know, as things got a little bit more advanced over the years, now it takes a whole farm of computers to mine uh, to mine for Bitcoin. It takes a lot of power, a lot of energy, which is called the proof of work system. And over time, we're actually moving away from these energy intensive systems of mining into something called proof of stake, which is a different type of um, essentially uh, unlocking the blocks on the Bitcoin and releasing money into the, e the ecosystem with, especially through Ethereum, which will happen soon. But essentially in proof of work, you're mining Bitcoins by taking computers and solving complex algorithms. And when these algorithms are solved, a certain amount of Bitcoin are released into the system. So that's basically what Bitcoin mining is. And when you solve for a block on the chain, that's why it's called blockchain. When you solve for a block on the chain, more 
uh, coin is released into the system. Right now, I believe that there's it's set so that every time a block on the chain is solved via these complex algorithms with you know massive amounts of computing power over a network of computers, uh, six Bitcoin are released into the system. As of this writing, uh, one Bitcoin is worth about $65,000. So that's about $400,000 of total value released into the system every time one block is mined. And um, every four years, there's a halving of that number of Bitcoins that's released into the system, You know, presumably to slow the, the release of all the number of coins. So by 2024, which is the next halving, only three Bitcoin will be released into the system for every one block that's mined. Um, so that's just a basic overview of like what happens when you mine Bitcoin and how many there are in the system and the fact that there are, there's true scarcity and you can't just print, You don't. there's no Bitcoin money printer. There are other coins that do have infinite supplies. Not all cryptocurrency is scarce, but Bitcoin is the first and original and many think it's the best store of value uh, that we have so far, at least on the digital front. You know, it's, it's a lot like gold in that way, but even better because even gold uh, isn't truly scarce. There's always more of it that can be found or, or manufactured, you know, like, making like fool's gold, I guess. Diamonds, same thing. You can always like create lab-created diamonds. There's no lab-created Bitcoin for the most part. It is, is what it is. So all of that in mind, like a way to be looking at this is that we are creating a new stock market. You know, if you look at all the different types of cryptos in the market um it, it's what i want you to see is not is not weird currencies i want you to see stocks because that's essentially what we're creating and i want you to think back to the internet boom of the early 2000s the late 90s early 2000s and i'll ask you a question you know if you could invest a thousand dollars in amazon in 1997 when they ipo'd which is their initial public offering how much do you think that would be worth now let me drink my kombucha while you do a little head calculation you got your answer? Okay. Well, Amazon stock was $18 when it was released in 1997, $18 per share, and it split three times uh, in the past you know, couple decades, meaning that more shares were created. And now a single share of Amazon stock is worth about $3,500. So your $1,000 of shares at $18 per share, when you account for the stock splits, over that period of time, your $1,000 will be worth about $1.2 million now. That's just from buying it, holding it, and never touching it. And without a doubt, there are many, many cryptos that will be the equivalent of Amazon, eBay, Netflix, Facebook, Apple. Those old school, quote, old school tech companies now, well, there's a rebirth of tech in the form of Web3, in the form of blockchain, in the form of crypto, uh, which is happening right now for our millennial generation. A new stock market is being created in front of our eyes. And look, if we take this back to, uh, let's take it back to World War II. You know, I'll give you a little brief, a brief example of what's happening here. In World War II, as, as Europe was completely under siege, um, America was kind of sitting back. And I see us as coming into the war in the middle of the fourth quarter, let's say, in the late 40s, in the middle of the fourth quarter. Uh, you know, we were fresh. We'd been sure we'd been attacked at Pearl Harbor, but that wasn't a very significant damage to our military power. It was, a, you know, morally bad, but not significant strike to our military power. So we came into World War II fresh and we essentially cleaned up that entire war. Yes, we had uh, help from the Allies, and so I'm not downplaying that, but, you know, we came in, we dropped atomic bombs, we kicked people in their ass, you know, and um, and we came out victorious. And during that time, Europe was sending most of their gold 
to the United States in order to keep it safe while they were being completely, you know, pillaged. And America became the world power because we were becoming the wealthiest nation during and after the war. We were holding the most gold in our treasuries. And what that allowed us to do is that allowed us to peg the dollar to gold. Therefore, the dollar became the U became the world reserve currency. If you wanted gold, you could take it out in the form of dollars because gold is hard to lug around, it's hard to carry, it's, you know, it's expensive to transport, takes time, but dollars which we pegged to gold, a certain amount of gold equals $1 or did equal $1. That's what's called the gold standard. Dollars became the reserve currency of the world. So the world began operating on dollars rather than in gold, essentially. Dollars became the universal signifier of value for you know, for the world, for, for people. And this made us very wealthy because our native currency became the most valuable currency in the world and we just started printing money. I mean, it was backed by gold until 1971. And so between 1950 and 1971, America was the fattest cat and we had a huge surge in wealth. This country became the wealthiest country, the generation of baby boomers who came after and as a result of World War II became the wealthiest generation. I don't know if it's in the history of the world, but it could be up to that point for sure. For sure, that in up to that point, they were the wealthiest generation in the history of the world. We had all this new technology. We had all this, you know, social progression. We had all, you know, all the best and the brightest were moving to the United States to take part in this, uh, this revolution at that time. And America was in its heyday. In 1971, you know, we got too big for our britches, and that's when Nixon took us off of the gold standard. Ever since then, we've been printing money. Part of the idea around printing money in the, the Federal Reserve is that with fractional bank, fractional reserve banking, what that means is that you can have more money. The, 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 the Federal Reserve is allowed to, is allowed to print more money than they actually have. So we don't have any money. Our, our money isn't backed by gold anymore, meaning that there isn't a direct correlation of how much gold we have on our vaults versus how much money is on the street. We have way more money on the street than we have gold to back it up because we're no longer on the gold standard. And further than that, fractional reserve banking uh, means that the Federal Reserve is allowed to issue up to 10 times as much money as they actually have in their possession. So let's say that a bank has a million dollars, you know, in its total assets. They are allowed to issue $10 million of loans as, as just a matter of law in accordance with this fractional reserve system because they're allowed to issue up to 10 times as much money as they actually have in loans, hoping that those loans come back and they're able to cash in on the interest of those loans. And this is really weird because if you think back to 2008 when the financial crisis happened, well, this mortgage crisis was happening. All these people couldn't pay their mortgages. These are called, you know, this, all the subprime mortgages were crashing. People weren't able to pay for their houses. There was a you know huge correction in the market. And when people couldn't pay their mortgages, the banks had all these loans out that people were no longer able to pay. And the banks started to go under because they had way more money loaned out than they had uh, actually in reserve. They were way overextended. Now, if a normal person did this, where they were basically, if you were, if you were, if you were spending ten times the amount of money than you actually had, you'd quickly go bankrupt. But banks, well, they're too big to fail, and the government actually bailed out many of these banks so that they weren't allowed to actually go under. And this just shows the hypocrisy of the system because <laughs> they were bailing out the banks, meaning that the banks that were literally about to fail, the government funded, uh, backed up, you know, saved, swooped in and saved, and this is under Obama's watch, caused a lot by Bush and proliferated by Obama. 
But not only did that happen, but you look and you think, well, the government was quick to bail out all the banks that were going under, but all the people who couldn't actually afford their mortgages ended up, a lot of them, you know, getting evicted, being homeless, getting pushed out of their house. So their houses were still foreclosed on. Regular everyday Americans weren't given the opportunity to be bailed out by the government. Maybe we were given a little stimulus package, a couple thousand dollars, but we weren't bailed out in any way, whereas the banks were bailed out. Don't you think it, it's interesting that they bail out the banks, not the people, when the people are the ones with the actual problem? The banks should be allowed to honestly implode if they have to, because they overextended themselves through a system that's not designed for them to have any real accountability. This is not just a one-person issue, like a, a presidential issue, or even, even a specific political party party that causes this problem. It's the it's the way that the system is set up. It's the fact that the Federal Reserve uh, banking system, uh, the fractional reserve banking system allows for banks to overextend themselves to the point where it's financially irresponsible and they can't even uh, they can't even really support themselves with with the type of business they do. Their business model it's not a it's not a bug that they are uh, that they are overextending themselves. It's a feature, and they'll continue to do that. And the banking system will continue to exist like this until there's some sort of big change. Now, where does crypto come into all this? Well, especially when we're talking about digital currencies, having a ledger with true accountability, with real scarcity around assets like Bitcoin, uh, it's just not possible for some of these things to happen. There will be you know problems within. The crypto industry and as the as the technology evolves and as those markets evolve there will be issues but they won't be the same issues as the ones that are happening in the banking system and continue to happen so we look at you know back at these markets you know and we say all right well if i could have invested some money back when these this big boom was happening with the with the internet bubble you know back in the early 2000s i absolutely would have and this is happening all over again guys the the internet boom is happening but on steroids and that's because with web 3 coming web 3 isn't being started in a vacuum it has web 1 and web 2 to look back on to build upon to rely on as an underlying uh, technological undergrid whereas web 1 was you know the first the first piece of this and web 2 was the evolution web 3 now has two other iterations to look back on and it's moving even faster in fact if you look at user adoption um, of cryptocurrency versus user adoption of the original internet right now just in terms of timeline we're in about 1997 here in 2001 in 2021 we're about at the same number of uh, users adopting cryptocurrency at this point in 2021 as we were in 1997 with the adoption of the internet. And I believe that in terms of the usability of this technology, we're closer to 1994, 1995, because people haven't even really imagined uh, what it will be like to really use these technologies on a day-to-day -day basis. They, we haven't really wrapped our mind around this. So let's talk again about you know, developing this portfolio. What should it look like? Well, the first thing, whew, taking a breath here, is why are you investing? Why? What's the reason you're investing? I think there are a lot of reasons people get into this. You know, one of the reasons is just to make money. Obviously, you know, we're looking for uh, a quick win, you know, number go up, as they say on the memes. And there's certainly nothing wrong in investing because you want to make money. Uh, another reason people invest is FOMO, you know, fear of missing out on something big, being in the in crowd. Um, I have a lot of friends who are now getting into crypto or who have been in it for a while. And whenever they're looking at something and they tell me about it, I want to get in on that too, if I can, because uh, I don't want to miss a big, a big boom. There's a lot of FOMO. There's a lot of fun and curiosity around the space right now. It's early days of a new technology. So there's a lot of fun that is in this space. And there's a lot of curiosity because people, you know, Everything is new, basically. Literally everything is new. My personal perspective is that if you're going to invest in this space, 
you should be thinking for long-term value investing. It doesn't mean that you can't you can't do some flips, you can't do some, you know, make some quick money as well. That does happen and you can make a lot of those moves. But my perspective is you should be looking at currency cryptocurrencies that have your best interest in mind in terms of you know what they plan on doing. And a lot of these cryptos have a roadmap. They have, or I should say the good ones have a roadmap. They have a plan and a vision for what they're going to do with their technology and they have a a team that's executing it and a community behind it and my personal recommendation is that you find the cryptos that have real utility or developing a real case for their utility where there's they're not just going to be traded as some sort of um you know random digital currencies but they actually have a use in you know gaming or 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 medical use or or transportation or um you know there are even these things called city coins which are being built in major cities now to like power and to fund new york and miami and austin or bitcoin itself which is you know designed as a store of value you know there are currencies and crypto projects which have real utility versus ones that are kind of just, we call them shit coins, you know, and, and some of these shit coins can make a lot of money if you flip them and you trade them at the same time. But oftentimes you, you lose on those if you're not directly in the, in the, the crosshairs of the target. And so we want to look for things that have long-term value. There were a ton of companies in the early 90s, uh, in the late 90s, that were uh, developing product ideas. But if you could have looked to see what Amazon's vision was, if you could have looked to see what Facebook's vision was, if you could look to see, you know, what Google and Apple's vision was, you could see, okay, well, they have a long-term plan here. It seems like they have a smart team behind them. They have a, a, a rapidly, you know, emphatic community of people who are interested in what they're doing. Those seem like smart bets, even though there's no guarantee. You know, there are a lot of car- companies from the internet era that died. But the real, the real idea here is that you only need to be right once to really make a, you know, a success or a, a substantial win for yourself. You don't have to get everything right. You need to get the fundamentals right and you don't need to win everything. You just need to be under, you just need to be, you know, involved in some of the big projects and I think the rest will take care of itself. So, you know, as we talk about these different projects, let's quickly talk about the difference between Bitcoin, which is most people's, you know, real familiarity with crypto. People are, if anything, people have heard of Bitcoin. Let's talk about the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, Bitcoin is... Bitcoin is the number one digital currency, the number one cryptocurrency. It has the highest value per coin. It's the oldest one and it's the most well-known. And there's Ethereum, which is uh, the second crypto in terms of, um, I think, value. I think it has the second highest value in the market right now. I'm pretty sure it does. And it's also the first altcoin, which essentially anything that's not Bitcoin is an altcoin. So Ethereum was the first and is the biggest altcoin. And, and everything else that is not Bitcoin is also an altcoin. Now, here's the difference. Ethereum is actually not a coin. Ethereum is a network. And the coin, Ether, is basically the token that runs on the Ethereum network. So there's a small distinction, although people use these words interchangeably. But really, the only real coin is Bitcoin, okay? But a token is essentially a store of value on a network, and Ethereum is a network and Ether is the token of that network. So when people say they're trading Ethereum, technically they're trading Ether, which is the token on that network, but they're pretty much used interchangeably. So I'm not gonna make a huge differentiator here 
uh, on this uh, on this podcast. When I say Ethereum, what I really mean is the Ether token. The Ether token is what's worth about $4,600 per token as as of today in, in uh, what is it, November 2021. But I'm not going to make a huge distinction. The real difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum is that Ethereum improves on Bitcoin by making it easy to program on top of it. So Ethereum as a network is essentially the world's biggest supercomputer. Ethereum connects, you know, thousands or millions of computers at this point and allows for other developers to build apps on top of the Ethereum network in order to run um, projects on the blockchain. And these apps are called dApps, which stands for decentralized applications, meaning that different apps are being built on top of the Ethereum network. And so a lot of these new projects that you're hearing about, whether it's, oh, you know, I don't know, what are some, what are some, what are some different Ethereum projects? You know, everything from uh, Matic to, you know, all these different like Doge, Dogecoin to all these different coins that you hear about. Many of them are built on Ethereum. Ethereum is the token. Uh, Ether or Ether, Ether is the token. Ethereum is the network. And many of these new these new apps, which are really just tokens on the Ethereum network, are built on top of Ethereum. And the Ethereum network is actually referred to as the EVM, Ethereum Virtual Machine. So that's the difference. Now, there actually is uh, a protocol that's allowing people to build on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. And I think it's called Stacks, which is the which is the protocol that that's allowing people to build applications on the blockchain on the Bitcoin blockchain. I haven't really seen too much about that that protocol yet, although there are some interesting projects like City Coins being built on top of Stacks. But Bitcoin was primarily designed to be a store of value, not as a not as a peer to peer network for building applications. Ethereum, on the other hand, is a peer to peer network designed specifically for building other applications on top of. So it's an ecosystem in that way. And so that's the main thing. And and that's why I believe that Ethereum will continue to go up in value just because so much is being built on that platform from DeFi and uh, different different uh, exchanges and di- even stable coins are built on Ethereum and different DAOs, which we'll talk about later, are built on Ethereum. And all these things are just, just ways of interacting with the Ethereum network. And there are other networks that are being built as well too. Ethereum has competitors. So, you know, that's something to think about. So... Those are the main differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Now, let's talk about different things you can put in your portfolio. The first thing is where should you get a portfolio or, like, or how, how, should you, how should you start to think about building your portfolio? Well, the first thing is, you know, you have to have an exchange to trade on. The biggest one and the most well-known, and it, really this is a centralized exchange in many ways, meaning that there's one company that controls it, which is, I think, totally fine uh, in this instance, is called Coinbase. And Coinbase is basically just, um, it's just a, it's just a marketplace to buy and sell cryptocurrency. It's the most well-known. It has a very friendly user experience. They're just recently dropping an NFT uh, platform on Coinbase, which we can talk more about on a later podcast. But there's a ton of uh, traction with this with this platform now, I really like Coinbase. I do all of my crypto my crypto trading on there. Um, but there are also other ones too. There's uh, things like Kra- uh, Kraken. There's Binance, which is a whole separate ecosystem. Many other projects that aren't on Coinbase are on Binance. There's Crypto.com. So these are exchanges where you're going to buy your cryptocurrencies. You can download these apps on your smartphone, on your tablet. You can log in on your computer. They'll take various forms of identification, and you can go from there. Now these are these are essentially especially Coinbase and Binance. These are centralized, meaning there's like one company that's holding it and running it. 
And although cryptocurrency itself is meant to be decentralized, these these applications, essentially, these platforms are centralized. So there is the argument to be made that if you're keeping your money on these exchanges or on the on these uh you know these platforms you're not really doing full decentralized banking you're not really doing full decentralized crypto trading because they're holding on to your money so like when you buy your bitcoin on coinbase for instance unless you move it somewhere else it just sits there on the coinbase exchange which many would say if you're starting to develop you know starting to get a good amount of any asset you shouldn't keep it on the exchange you know but these exchanges like Coinbase have wallets where you can hold on to your Coinbase digitally or hold on to your, your cryptocurrency digitally on these wallets. It's it's fine to do this. I think that to a certain extent, it's okay to have some of your crypto on these exchanges or in these digital wallets. Um, you don't want to have all your stuff in there, especially when you start to develop you know a pretty robust portfolio. But I don't think it's a horrible thing. It's just something to note that it, you know you can... If anything happens with one of these apps or one of these platforms, you can lose your money. Now that, you know, that goes to say the same thing with Chase or with Wells Fargo. You know, they can also restrict access to you getting in on your, uh, you know, your your money, your funds. They can also give access, for instance, with the, you know, the banking system to the government to levy your taxes and things like that. So like there are, there are ups and there's downs to having a decentralized exchange like Coinbase or like Kraken, you know, um, which makes it similar to a regular bank. But I feel they have quite different aims for their purveyance and quite different aims for their uh, their product. So I'm generally very much for them, uh, but it's something to know. Now, once you decide to, you know, which platform you want to use uh, to, to buy your crypto, there also are places where you can store it offline. So for instance, when you have your crypto and you buy it and you store it on either an exchange or in one of their wallet apps, it's called a hot wallet. Hot wallet means that it's connected to the internet at all times. This also opens you up to hacks because if someone can hack your phone, they can hack your wallet. You know, anything that's online 24-7 is hackable. Anything that's offline is not hackable. And that's why they have these hardware wallets. So well, while the exchanges have software wallets, they also have hardware wallets. One of the wallets I use is called the Ledger Nano S. It's essentially just a flash drive with really badass encryption. And you can store your cryptocurrencies on these wallets. Once they're on the wallet, they're there for life. Uh, there are certain passcodes you have to remember to get access to your wallet. And, you know, no one can hack that because it's not online. It's offline. You store it in a safe location. And there's some beauty to the system because this is when you start to truly own your crypto. If it's not on your wallet, if it's not, if it, if it's not in your actual possession at any time, whether you're it's that you lose electricity or you lose cell phone signal or these platforms go offline. I mean, shit, we saw Facebook go offline and all three other apps, Facebook, Instagram, you know, and WhatsApp go offline. What if Coinbase goes offline? You know, does that mean you lose your money? Maybe it does. Um, you know, what if what if Coinbase gets hacked and many wallets lose their lose their money? You know, there certainly are hackers out there. What if your own individual wallet gets hacked? Um you know, so so these are things where um, you, you know it might not be safe to have it on a hot wallet or on an exchange. The cold wallet, something like a Ledger, um, or they have another one called Tezor, I think, um, also give you the option to store your your crypto and be able to make it portable as well. And you know, I think there's a lot of upside to this. I also think there's some downside of you know it creates even more responsibility. You have to really um, secure your passwords on these things. You have to maybe store them in a few different places. You have to, when you're storing the crypto wallet, keep it in a place where you're not going to lose it and make sure that you always know where it is. And if you want to listen to more about the, the philosophy and strategy behind that, make sure you listen to our episode number three with Hillary Lee, where she talks about uh, her crypto wallet system. 
But yeah, I mean, you know, and I, what I think is that most people don't actually want to have full authority over their finances. Most people want another party to take some responsibility for their assets because it's really scary to have full uh, full autonomy. You know, they don't want all the control because all the control means that any mistake is yours. And I'm guilty of this as well. Like I still have a good amount of money on the exchanges. I put some on the nano. Um, and I think over time, I'm going to start putting more and more on the hardware as I become more comfortable with it. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, it feels good to have someone else. If I lose my password, you know, they can give me a backward back backup password. You know, if you lose your password on the, on the wallet, that's it, man. You know, it's over. So we're so used to having these digital banks, having someone hold our money for us that we're not used to being the custodian of our own resources. But that is a step in true ownership. That's a step in uh, in authority over ourselves and sovereignty. And I think it's definitely part of the new wave. So check out uh, Ledger as well. It's a great wallet to learn or to, to use. Uh, and then also when it just comes to, um, you, you know, getting your like the ground rules set up for building your portfolio, I highly recommend that you check out different swaps. Now, swaps are where you can basically ch exchange one crypto for another. You can do some swapping on Coinbase, but the majority of the Ethereum-based tokens that are available right now, you can exchange them through things like Uniswap. Uniswap is a great place to, it's essentially um, it's a decentralized platform where you can plug in one currency. Let's say I had, let's say I had some Bitcoin and I wanted to exchange it for, or actually, no, let's say I had some Ethereum because it's a, it's a uh, Ethereum based swap. Let's say I had some Ethereum and I wanted to swap it for Shibcoin or something, you know, I could swap it on Uniswap. And it would be, it would make basically the equivalent, you know, it's like, it's like almost like uh, swapping money when you're traveling internationally, you know, you, these are the, what the exchanges are for. If I had uh, some Ethereum and I wanted to sw swap it for uh, Phantom, which is a, you know, which is a gaming crypto FTM, I could swap Ethereum for Phantom on Uniswap and MetaMask, which is another wallet. It's a hot wallet for Ethereum based tokens uh, can also be used as an exchange as well. And MetaMask is one of the most popular wallets. Uh, it can be integrated right with your desktop on your desktop browser on, on Mozilla or Chrome. There's a wonderful heart, uh, um, application for it for smartphones. And it's a fantastically easy to use wallet as well, which I highly recommend. And so MetaMask not only can store your currency, but can also swap it as well. And then on the Binance chain, which is separate from, you know, Ethereum-based uh, tokens, is separate from Coinbase, they have a, something called the Pancake Swap, which can swap different Ethereum-based tokens as well, or di different Binance-based tokens as well. The code for that's BNB, Binance. Um, so there are different swaps as well. So you have exchanges where you can buy crypto and you can, you can sell it. You have uh, swaps where you can swap it and you have wallets where you can store it. These are basic concepts which are a little bit confusing in the beginning, but become easier as you develop some more, some more, you know, just sense around the market space. I'll give you a run through of some of the cryptos that I have and things that you might want to consider setting up in your in your crypto portfolio. So let's we're getting more into the meat here of like what you should have. So I think as OG staples, you should definitely have Bitcoin and Ethereum. Bitcoin and Ethereum are the top two in terms of value in the marketplace. I don't see them going anywhere. I, I see them continually rising in value. I see they have utility. Bitcoin as a store of value, Ethereum as a, you know, a token for the network and for building other apps on top of. I see them being consistently, consistently increasing in value and not going anywhere, especially just because time in the market is a very important part of any company's success. And I see this as companies. So I believe they will be continue to be successful even with the volatility uh, long term.
Litecoin is also one of those uh, those those OG cryptos that you know it has some utility in terms of trading for value, and it has had an all time high in, here in twenty twenty one, which is up around four hundred bucks. But it's pretty up and down, and I don't really see it used much. Although what I will say is that Litecoin is featured on major major places like PayPal, I think Amazon now. Um, so it is seen as a fairly well-regarded um, store of value, and it could be something you can add to your platform, which I believe will go up over time. Uh, what I want to talk about, which are specifically interesting to me, are different smart contract protocols or platforms that are essentially competitors to Ethereum. And I believe that these are important to know about because just like Ethereum has you know thousands of different tokens and, and applications being built on top of it, these smart contract protocols. So just to back it up, a smart contract is essentially essentially it's an application. I mean, it, it's it's I, I think you can use the word DAP, which is decentralized application and smart contract interchangeably. And if that's not correct, someone correct me in the comments. But they're pretty 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 similar here. And there are other smart contract protocols and other platforms which are competing with Ethereum to be the home of different decentralized apps. And why I think this is important is because if you look at any marketplace, you know, sure, you might have Ethereum being the number one smart contract platform, but Nike is the number one shoe brand in the world. But man, Reebok is still huge. K-Swiss is still huge. You know, Puma is still huge. You still have billion dollar, multi-billion dollar brands in an industry where there are true and clear leaders. So I personally want to be invested in the other, as well as Bitcoin and Ethereum, want to be invested in the other protocols that are going to work on developing their own version of smart contracts because Ethereum actually has some, some problems and they're working on solving them. The big problem right now is that it's very expensive to run the Ethereum network because it's all running on proof of work. We can go more into that at a later time. That kind of has passed the scope of this uh, this podcast for now, but it's expensive and energy, in terms of energy and time, it's expensive and time consuming to mine and to create these uh, these systems based on the proof of work way that 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 Ethereum is currently running. And so we want, we're looking for more energy efficient, quicker, and more uh, streamlined ways of hosting decentralized applications. And there are several platforms that are doing this well, or that are positioned with a good roadmap and a good team behind them to do this well. So there are things like Solana, which, is, which have come into the public spotlight very, very recently and has had huge increases this year. SOL, Sol. We have things like Dot, Polkadot, which is another platform uh, which is going to create smart contracts, applications, and other things on their platform. You have ALGO, which stands for Algorand, A-L-G-O, which, uh, which is their ticker symbol. And they're also working on developing NFTs and other things on there. Uh, you have ADA, which is Cardano. And, uh, you know, I've lost a little bit of faith in Cardano recently because they haven't had as many good updates recently. But I still think that they'll be a front runner. I think Soul might knock them off, but they're still part of that crew that's looking to replace or to compete legitimately with Ethereum. Uh, and they have increased over the past year. You look at things like Avalanche, AVAX, AVAX, uh, which is also competing pretty well with uh, Ethereum and, and is continuing to rise. So look at those, ADA, ADA, AVAX, AVAX, Sol, S-O-L, Solana, DOT, which is Polkadot, uh, D-O-T, and Algo, which is Algorand. These are, you know, four or five ones that they're not just they're not just tokens, they're networks. So they're networks with tokens. So just like Ethereum is a network and Ether is the token, ADA has its own token, AVAX has its own token, SOL has its own token, uh, DOT has its own token. So these are networks that are that other apps will be built on top of. These are networks where other useful uh, applications will be, will be built on top of. And these are the things you want to get involved in because as more 
things become relevant in these spaces, they'll be built on top of these platforms. Therefore, the platforms will increase in value. So add these to your, your uh, portfolio. Or I should say, do your research and add the ones to your portfolio that make sense. And obviously with all this stuff, do your research, read the white papers, read the websites, get on, you know, crypto Twitter, like learn about these things, but get some smart contracts and some smart, uh, some, some protocols and platforms into your portfolio. I also would recommend that you check into uh, some stable coins. Like what are stable coins? Stable coins are just digital currencies that are pegged to the US dollar. Now, why would we want to peg a current peg, a, uh, a digital currency to the US dollar? Well, for a few reasons. One, a lot of these stable coins, which, you know, they don't go up and down with the market, they stay at a dollar. So for instance, you have USDC, which is US dollar coin, you have USDT, which is, uh, which is uh, called Tether. And these are, these are um, essentially just, they're made as a store of value, a store of, a store of dollars. And a lot of times these stable coins have actually much better interest rates than traditional banks. Traditional banks are giving you like, you know, less than 1% interest all the time. Some of these stable coins, I believe USDC is actually fairly low interest as well, but things like Algo, which isn't even a stable coin, is giving you up to 4% interest just for holding it. But some of these stable coins are giving you really good interest rates. And not only that, but it gives you um, essentially some dry powder if you want to keep it in the market for when something dips and you want to buy. So you don't always have to be paying transaction fees to move money around. And if you want to just send dollar to dollar to people who you're either paying or, uh, you know, business transactions you're making, sending it via USDC is quick. You know, if you uh, if you want to send money to someone via ACH, like you want to wire them money, um, you know, it will take three to five business days. If you send via USDC, it takes 10 minutes. So these are great ways to send money on the chain uh, via US dollars. Another thing you can look into are Oracle networks. Oracle networks are essentially um, platforms that allow things off the chain to communicate with things on the chain. Um, so for instance, one example might be if you had medical records that needed to be put on the blockchain to create some sort of information for your doctors to look at or to create some other type of transaction or value for you or to integrate with something else, another application that was on the blockchain, if you need to share that information with something else on the chain, oracles pull information from off the chain and put it on the chain. And one of those would be, for instance, Chainlink, which the code for that is Link. You know, I think Link is going to be a sleeper because we don't even know what the typical use of, a, of an Oracle network is going to be right now because we're still so early in the technology. But I believe that Link is going to do very, very well. Um, so you might want to look at Oracle networks. You know, when you think about exchanges, for instance, exchanges are these platforms that the that are being used to change uh, money around. So swaps, essentially. Well, I, sh I should say this. Um, okay, let's make a distinction. Coinbase and Binance are centralized exchanges. Okay, I guess if you call them CEX, centralized exchanges. They're run by one company, and it's just like a, it's like a normal company, quote, like a normal Wall Street company. A decentralized exchange or a DEX is a company that, or, or, or not, is not even a company. It's a, it's an algorithm essentially that is like a, it's a money exchanger, a, a currency exchanger with no sp central org. It's all based on a network of nodes. So things like Uniswap, things like, um, like uh, Pancake Swap, these all have different tokens. For instance, with uh, Uniswap, it's UNI, UNI. I think the symbol is a unicorn. With uh, PancakeSwap, I think the code is CAKE, C-A-K-E. These are tokens that are used on the network 
to help power the network for these exchanges. So these are decentralized. So whereas Coinbase doesn't have a coin, they have stock because I believe that they went public in the regular stock market. Decentralized exchanges have coins, or I guess they would technically be tokens. And these, I believe, are going to continue to go up in value as well because these exchanges are being used more and more. So you might want to look into some of those DEX tokens, D-E-X. You know, that's what, I mean, that's what the abbreviation for these decentralized exchanges is, DEX. So those are also things to look at. Uh, there are also things like DAOs. You know, DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And DAOs are really great because they're a new form of company. It's basically similar to a, to a DEX. It is a group of people who get together and you can contribute money as part of a DAO, contribute Ethereum, contribute tokens to achieve a certain goal, whether it's to take part in buying or the selling of something, whether it's to create a community and have voting rights, whether it's to, you know, to donate to a, a cause. Everyone in a DAO um, by virtue of them contributing to the DAO, actually has a stake of ownership and a voting right in that DAO, in that organization. And many are saying that DAOs are going to be the new way that corporations are built in you know this post-Web2 world. One example I can give you is that uh, recently, the Wu-Tang album, the Million Dollar Wu-Tang album, was sold to a DAO called Pleaser DAO for a million dollars. And there are like several hundred or several thousand people that are a member of this DAO they all have a, you know, a share of this DAO based on how much money they've contributed to it. And so now all of them own a fractional piece of this Wu-Tang album. So there's a physical album which has you know, intellectual property rights. And now everyone who's in this DAO owns a piece of that album. This is something that can never have been done before. There is never a system where thousands of people could own a small fraction of a physical asset. And this is now happening through the through the technology of DAOs. Same thing with real estate, which is now happening. People are investing in real estate through DAOs. People are investing in even digital real estate through DAOs. People are investing in NFTs through DAOs. There are things called blue chip NFTs, these very expensive NFTs that cost hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And DAOs are getting together, organizing money and purchasing these blue chip NFTs where everyone has a small piece of that. And as that asset accrues value, so do all the people in that DAO uh, increase their share or they, they increase their the amount of money their share is worth. And certain DAOs have tokens. So for instance, MakerDAO has a token and it's M-A-K-E-R. So these DAOs create economies within their DAO and then they have tokens which the public can buy into. So there's all these different systems for creating uh, money through just investing in DAOs. Those are also going to be on exchanges like Coinbase. The gaming space has tons of coins as well to look into. So I think a great resource here, if you want to learn more about gaming, the gaming space is Alex Becker. He has a fantastic uh, YouTube and a Twitter feed where he talks all about almost exclusively gaming crypto. Some of the ones that I hold are Phantom, FTM, uh, um, Chain Gang Guardians, CGG, uh, D-Race, which is D-E-R-A-C, uh, Axie Infinity, which is A-X-I-E. These are all part of the gaming space. And what I think is huge about gaming is that it really shows the Web3 ethos of community first. In Web 2, it was all about building a product first and the community would hopefully follow. In Web 3, it's about building the community first and the product comes after that. A lot of these games haven't even launched yet, but they'll build a rabid community around it. And as soon as they launch, the tokens explode. And of course, there's going to be a lot of volatility in this market as well. But crypto gaming as a whole is going to be the next biggest revolution in terms of like what this technology can do because it hooks into VR, hooks into AR, 
Also, a lot of these games are being powered on the networks that are alternatives to Ethereum. So Solana, for instance, is, is going to be uh, one of the, the protocols that host a lot of these gaming platforms or a platform that hosts a lot of these games themselves. Avalanche, AVAX. So you can see where I'm going with this because like smart contract protocols or platforms like Solana or like, uh, like AVAX or like Algorand, for instance, are going to be the platforms that power some of these gaming the, or the, these gaming tokens and ultimately these, these video games on the blockchain. Blockchain gaming is going to be huge. So what you have here is you have games themselves like, you know, like Axie Infinity, like D-Race, which are all powered on networks. So the games themselves go big and the networks that they're hosted on go big because the games are going big. So it's this, it's this interactive economy of the network itself that these games are being powered on and the games themselves. And the games themselves have economies within them. Axie Infinity, for instance, pays their users in their token and those tokens can be exchanged for Ethereum and those Ethereums can be exchanged for dollars, you know? So there's a real monetary value. Some people in Southeast Asia are making their full-time living off of playing Axie Infinity. And I, I recommend that you check out Bankless as well, which has uh, which is a great podcast with fantastic episodes on um, you know how to how to invest in these gaming cryptos and what to look for. And they have some really good interviews on there to learn more about ga- uh, gaming coins. Um, so I, I recommend you look into the gaming space. Then of course there's all these meme coins. We've heard about Dogecoin, Kishu Coin, Shib Coin. Um, these are all like the dog coin memes. And there are a lot of other meme coins. There was a a, a Squid Game coin with a huge rug pull that happened a few months ago. Uh, you know, generally speaking, you know, these coins are, I would say they're very risky because they are, of all things, probably the least utilizable because they don't have any actual, many of these these meme coins, which are just coming up through social media, don't have any real utility that are going to be used in the real world. But if the community gets behind them enough, they do create a lot of value for a short period of time. You know, uh, earlier this year, Shipcoin had a huge pump. And if you would have put $1,000 in the ship coin in August 2020, by September, by, well, it was really, yeah, by, by November of 2021, it would have been worth $200 million. And, you know, some people got ridiculously rich off that. And you'll never really know which coin it is going to be that's going to explode. But there are certainly some interesting ones. And, um, and you can take a look at those. I mean, a lot of them are on uh, Coinbase. A lot of them are on, um, actually, most of them are going to be on swaps because basically what happens with swaps is the big, the big coins that get very popular get themselves onto the centralized exchanges like Coinbase. But in the beginning, decentralized exchanges or swaps as they're known, like either Uniswap, PancakeSwap, MetaMask, uh, a lot of the smaller coins, the small cap coins are going to be on those exchanges. Uh, they have smaller market you know, uh, total market value, smaller amount of coins in circulation, uh, just overall, just smaller coins are going to be on those decentralized exchanges. And, you know, fuck with some meme coins, go ahead. But I would say in your portfolio, it would be healthy to have some of the OG staples like Bitcoin and Ethereum, some smart uh, smart contract protocols and platforms like ADA, uh, AVAX, uh, Solana, DOT, you know, Polkadot, Algorand, Um, Even some things like BNB, you know, which is the Binance smart chain, which is very, very good. You could even look at things like Matic, which is a protocol built on top of Ethereum, look to improve Ethereum. Those are some of the ones that I have. So I have Bitcoin, Ethereum, ADA, BNB, AVAX, Solana, Matic, DOT, and Algorithm, or uh, Algorand. Uh, You might want to get some stable coins as well, like USDC or USDT. 
You might want to get some Oracle network stuff like Chainlink. You might want to get some DEX, some decentralized exchanges like uh, Uni or Cake. You might want to invest in some DAOs like Maker. You might want to invest in some stuff in the gaming space like Phantom, FTM, uh, CGG, D-Race, Axie. There's some meme coins you might want to get into. Those are kind of some of the categories you can look into. But I highly recommend that you go a little bit deeper and you can do your own research. And obviously, again, I'll say this again, this is not financial advice, do your own research. Definitely look at things like CoinMarketCap and CoinGecko. These websites will give you uh, the valuation of these coins. They'll give you some of the trends of the coins. They'll give you some backgrounds and bio history on both the small coins and the big coins. And they'll just get to you that this is the first place to do your research. And you can see what the trends are like. And then I also recommend that you listen to as much as you can to learn about this space before you start investing. This is a good primer for you, hopefully. But there's more to learn. If you want to go super deep, I recommend that you listen to the Bankless podcast, like I mentioned. I recommend that you listen to Tom Bilyeu via his podcast or via his YouTube. He has some fantastic playlists that's all on crypto, and he's a good friend. I recommend you listen to Journey Crypto, who has a fantastic uh, YouTube channel that just breaks down all the up-to-date stuff in the crypto space. And I recommend you listen to Alex Becker. These are all really, really good resources to start with. Again, do your own research. Uh, learn about this space. Get heavily involved in it. And be an active consumer and an active creator. Don't FOMO your way into things. Don't invest in things that you don't understand or you know that you're not willing to learn about. Don't invest more than you could be uh, than you could afford to lose. Um, and then invest with a with a buy and hold mentality. You know, obviously there are going to be times when you want to take profits. You know, and my friend Hillary Lee, who will talk about it uh, in, in her episode that I had on my show, episode three. You know, always take profits when you can. Set your exit point so that you know when you want to, you know, take those profits. But you know, don't so don't be afraid to take them and come from a position of I'm doing this for the long term. You know, this isn't. I, I personally don't see it as a short-term money grab. I see it as a long-term way of building value because I go back to the Amazon example and say, if I would have put $1,000 in Amazon in, you know, in 1997. Now, the funny thing is, I could have put $1,000 in Amazon in 97 and made $1.2 Or I could have put that same $1,000 in Shibcoin last year and made $217 million. So... That just shows you the speed of this market. And no one could have predicted either one of those, but I think Shibcoin has seemed much less likely than Amazon. But who the fuck knows? The whole point is, though, either way, you'd you would have had to buy and hold. Um, so, you know, start to build out your portfolio and, and allow building out your portfolio to be a resource or to be a catalyst for you to learn more about this stuff, for you to understand more about uh, about this space, get involved in it, uh, and become interested in it, and become a little bit obsessive. It's okay, you know, because this is a time where our generation has the opportunity. And bringing it back on this thread, you know, we talked about earlier in the episode about World War II and the the whole baby boomer generation, uh, you know, benefiting from the the spoils of World War II. After, you know, the 70s and moving into the 80s and the 90s, um, you know, our generation didn't have that same boom. In fact, I'd say that in the 80s and 90s, although we were riding off that high, we were really slowly sinking. And now the millennial generation has the opportunity through these new technologies, through this new stock market that's being developed to, to take part in an even bigger wealth transfer and wealth accumulation than of that post-World War II age. But in order to take advantage of it, you have to become educated because there are no gurus. You are the guru and it's your responsibility to learn and to adapt. So that's all I got for you today. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Please 
like and subscribe and leave a comment and a review. If you haven't already, it will really help us get the show out there and get this message out there to those who need it. If you have any questions, please feel free to email me, to hit me up on social media. You can find all my best links at alphamentorship.com forward slash links, especially places where you can download stuff like my Surfing the New Wave Guide, which is a continuously updated guide on all the fundamentals of crypto, Web3, uh, blockchain, all that cool stuff. So make sure that you subscribe to my email list by downloading that guide as well. That's all I have for you today, guys. I hope you really enjoyed this. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of The New Wave Entrepreneur, because guess what? The water is warm, the tide is rising, it's time to surf that new wave.